News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here with Professor Christina Greer elsewhere in Brooklyn, and Katie Honan of the city in Queens. Hi, Harry. Hi, Harry. Hey, Katie. Hey, Chrissy. In a bit, we're going to talk with Wayne Ho, head of the uh, powerful Chinese American Planning Council, about his group's work with uh, home health care workers and their push to change the state laws for how those workers are treated and paid. But first, it's late March, and we're still having a wild ride with appointments to the nearly three-month-old Adams administration, including one of his nominees for the Panel for Education Policy, not making it even 24 hours before withdrawing over her previous, uh, I would say, virulently homophobic remarks and writings that City Hall said it was somehow not aware of. Um, and as this has become something of a pattern uh, with this administration, as Adams has stood by three previous appointees with their own histories of, of homophobic remarks while saying they won't share those views, they've evolved, and they won't share those views as part of his administration. Hmm. That came days after Andrew Cuomo's latest speech, where he decried, quote, unquote, cancel culture, and uh, said crime was out of control. Like, wh where have the political leaders been, governor, of the last 10 years? And uh, we're going to come back to that and bail in a minute. Uh, but he gave this cancel culture speech at the invitation of former council member and virulent homophobe um, <laughs> and Pentecostalist preacher, uh, uh, Ruben Diaz Sr., and to an audience that included Andy King, who made history by getting thrown off the uh, city council uh, over ethics charges, sexually harassing his staff, and a bunch more. Uh, Katie, you reported last week, broke the news under the memorable headline, Lori Cumbo. Adam's supporter criticized for cultural insensitivity, set the lead cultural affairs agency. And sure enough, a couple days later, the, the administration made that official, not in a press conference like you generally do with big appointees, but a press release while Eric Adams was out of town saying that Cumbo, who'd infuriated both Hispanics and Asians by essentially arguing that they've been unfairly draining political power and resources for black New Yorkers, would be heading the Department of Cultural Affairs. Um, just, Katie, is this what it looks like to get stuff done or, or, or uh, with, with this administration? Or is this dancing with them, the Brunya, or, or what's happening? Here? <laughs> I think, as we've talked about, it seems all the time now on this podcast, it's getting into the head of Mayor Eric Adams, and he's very loyal to the people who've been loyal to him. And Lori Cumbo was an ardent supporter of him throughout the campaign. Um, you know, I will note, even in my conversation with Lori, um, look, she has a really prolific background in the arts and in arts administration. She has a master's degree in arts administration, was a longtime professor at Pratt. She launched her own museum, Mokata, uh, in Brooklyn, um, which started out in, in Bed-Stuy and is now in Fort Greene. So this isn't um, like, oh, yeah, here's this random person uh, doing this. But yeah, as the headline. But they knew I, you in know, January she was going to be the person. And then it's March, and then they, they waited so long that you yeah. break the news for them. They don't have a presser, so 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 it seems like 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 half in, half out in some sense to me at least. Right, and I think in terms of how this has been dis with a lot of these appointments with with the 
usually what happens is there's news about it and there's controversy and then there's sort of a retreat on the part of the mayor's office. Um, We've seen it, uh, you know, there's been reporting and I'd heard as well that there has been just a heightened vetting process. I don't know if that necessarily means people are not getting selected. I guess we saw that in the case of Carlos Asura, but I think they're just maybe waiting for things to cool off. Um, Lori Cumbo, her remarks, uh, her most recent remarks for the vote during non-citizen voting um, in the council uh, still has lots of criticisms for that. The remarks that she made um, about Asian Americans in her district, the, the line of questioning, this was in 2015, was about um, the waiting list at public housing. And, and she noted, look, you know, there are some buildings in my district that are predominantly Asian. How is it that if it's a true lottery system, that kind of thing? Um, I will say she did apologize for those remarks. I spoke with Assemblyman Ron Kim, who we'll hear about later in our show. Um, he said, look, you know, sh- she spoke with me. She apologized. She further explained what she meant um, and that kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, these are there were also remarks that she made. If you remember, I I'd completely forgotten about this. But when there were those knockout attacks against uh, religious Jewish people in Brooklyn, she had put some statements up saying, well, this is sort of a reaction to tensions between um, Black residents and Jewish residents, also very controversial at the time. But look, I think in in speaking to, you can't get inside anyone's head, but with Mayor Adams, it's clear he respects the people who have been loyal to him. You know, we saw it with Udonis Rodriguez. Um, we've seen it with Eric Salgado, who supported him heavily, right? And this is a person who had a, has a radio station. So I'm sure I wasn't listening to it, but I'm sure he was promoting Eric Adams, the candidate throughout the entire election. So this is what we'll see. And, you know, we haven't seen her as commissioner yet. We haven't, you know, I, I, I believe she started, but we haven't seen anything that's happened. We'll see when it comes to funding. We'll see how this shakes out. She could be a great commissioner for all we know in terms of, and, and when we spoke, I should point out, you know, she pointed out what she, the work she did, uh, on the council's cultural affairs and and the, and the funding that she she gave to organizations and really just creating budget lines for organizations that had not received that kind of funding. And in our, our conversation, even though she did not on the record say, she told me she was being onboarded, but said she did not know for what job, um, whether or not that was true or, or not, I won't, you know. Everything is revealed as as it's revealed, but she she wants to fund smaller organizations of all different ethnicities, whether it's acting, plays, you know, all that kind of stuff that, and I will point out the Department of Cultural Affairs in New York City is the largest municipal funder of the arts in the country. Um, So that's worth noting as well. But yeah, this is another, I think it's, he's loyal and and, and Mm -hmm. he's loyal to the people who are loyal to him. Professor Graham, back to that Cuomo speech. Cuomo (laughs) Cuomo went on about how uh, uh, New York is uh, hell on earth and Crime is rampant. Things are disgusting. Says the governor of tw- almost 12 years and wanted to be <laughs> mm-hmm, Go ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. If, if only we'd had a strong leader, right? Mm-hmm. So Cuomo says this last Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon, word comes out that uh, Ka- Governor Kathy Hochul's office, which it said they would need to see data, hard data, before rolling back any of the bail reform stuff. Uh, the past a few years ago in 2019, and then got rolled back a bit the very following year in 2020, really in response to tabloid headlines. Um, you know, they, they have a plan that they're trying to negotiate in the budget to further roll back uh, bail reform, raise the age, 
uh, so that more teens uh, who were involved who have guns could get tried in adult court and also uh, discovery reform, um, which a lot of prosecutors have said so almost accidentally as they're putting it out has just made it very difficult to move uh, cases forward. So this seems like a lot of rollback in a political year, an election year with her running for a term of her own right after the guy who she replaced, who, you know, is at least threatening to run, says she's got to do it. Um, and, and then this comes out. This is all getting negotiated in Albany right now. She now says, I won't negotiate in public. Her Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin ran away from reporters who asked about bail reform before apologizing for that. But like, it seems like the, the, the forces of criminal justice reform are in some retreat and that executives, starting with Adams and now, now, now Hochul, um, want to be saying that they're doing something now, even if this bail reform, which, just to be clear, was about ending cash bail and the inequities that come with that, that some people can afford to get out and others can't, there, there, there is no data saying that this is what's uh, behind this national, by the way, increase. National, right. Yep, in violent crime. So do you What's think make that, of it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, 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 the Hasty and Stewart's cousins are going to be able to hold their ground. Uh, do, do you think this is it for this reform moment? Like, where are we at? So I, I think that there, there are a few questions within that question, right? Because one, we've got the shadow of Andrew Cuomo, who's got nothing to do right now, but basically be a cold sore on <laughs> the state of New York. Um, and he's got a truckload of money. So he's just, I mean, he's hes Trumpian, right? I mean, he's sort of doing the same thing that Donald Trump is doing on a national level. I'm sort of dipping my toe in and threatening to, to jump back in so that you'll have to sort of uh, monitor what you say and do, knowing that I, I'm still a force and still a presence. Like, let's be clear. This man was governor for, you know, almost 12 years. And he was really powerful before then under his father and then his AG. Like he's had a he's had quite a few lives and resurrections. So I think he's hoping that, you know, he can emerge like a phoenix from this latest one. Because don't forget, you know, he was all but left for dead in 2001 with his comments about um uh, why am I blanking? So George Pataki was was it what he said he's the alpha dog uh the, the pataki the governor was holding uh giuliani's coattails and and, and he he probably screwed carl mccall uh out, out of his chance to be the first uh black governor by, by that's who i'm thinking of and and that carl mccall stuff you know like black people remember but black people forget right and we we do rally around we're loyal to i i would argue a fault as a people politically so there's the Andrew Cuomo piece. Then there's Kathy Hochul, who is running statewide. And as I've said before, this state is not blue. It is purple, leaning to red at best. And we just happen to, you know, um, turn blue every four years in a presidential election. But we had a three-term Republican governor. This state is very well capable of, of being more moderate to conservative. And we saw that, you know, a lot of times Andrew Cuomo was a dino. Right. I mean, he's the one who halted a lot of progressive legislation. He's the one who held it up because he wanted to make sure he kept the more moderate and conservative Democrats and weak leaning Republicans happy. So Kathy Hochul has that in mind. And Lee Zeldin, who's the likely Republican nominee yes. last week, put out a poll showing that, that it's an internal poll. Take it for what it's worth from a Trumpy polling agency, but himself within within spitting distance or yeah. the margin of error from Hochul. And obviously it's going to be a very different electorate this year and without Trump on the ballot than we had, for instance, in 2020. 
Right. But we also know that a lot of Democrats stay home on, you know, sort of midterm election years and Republicans and the ideologues come out. And yep. so they're they're more motivated. Right. And so depending on some of the congressional conversations, because some people will turn out because they want to make sure uh, that, you know, Congress stays Democrat. There are going to be a lot of Republicans who want to turn out to make sure Congress turns Republican. But in a state like New York, there are a lot of Democrats who would stay home because it's like, well, I'm in a solidly blue district. So why would I need to turn out? It's like, well, because at the top of the ticket is the Kathy Hochul question. So there's that. Then you've got this conflation of the national, as you correctly stated, the national trend of violent crime on the rise across the country and the conversation about bail reform, which those two issues are being conflated into one. And they should not be. So you have Mayor Adams sort of saying, close to the line, well, because of bail reform, we're seeing, you know, these spikes in violence, which thus far the data does not yield that at all. And so our racial reckoning from the summer of 2020 is long past. And we know that white voters are very fickle and finicky, especially when it comes to um perceptions that their lifestyle would be changed in any way, shape, or form. So even if violence is not in their neighborhoods, they're hearing about it. They're hearing that it's in their city. They're hearing that it's in neighboring cities. They're hearing that it's all over the country. And so this idea that we would be, quote unquote, lenient on bail um, is no longer as palatable as I think it once was, say, even a year ago. And so that's going to be a hard question for Kathy Hochul, especially because she's not just dealing with Republicans. She's dealing with Democrats who actually um, are very concerned about violent crime or just crime, period, right? Whether it's snatching earrings and purses all the way to stabbings and, and worse. So... That will definitely, and we see that in a national trend conversation, Republicans are already using that. We see it with the the confirmation of Ketanji Brown-Jackson, you know, sort of you aid and abet <laughs> violent criminals. And that's always Democrats are soft on crime. The code is always Black people are soft on crime. Black leaders are soft on crime, which will explain a lot of Eric Adams' draconian behavior. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if and how Kathy Hochul uses Michael Benjamin as a black man, as a black politician, to sort of hold some of the water when it comes to the conversation about crime, policing, uh, bail reform, rollbacks, uh, and sort of the policies that are all wrapped up in that process. So speaking of complicated competing narratives, Eric Adams has repeatedly used examples of bad people who'd been arrested, and then were let out and then did even worse things that had nothing to do with bail reform. Um, uh, and, and that set of laws and changes, which again had to do with ending the inequity of cash bail to make the case against bail reform. And I think one reason this has been politically successful is that a lot of the, the lawmakers and others defending bail reform, instead of saying, here's what we would do to ensure public safety, or we're aware of this issue, and here's what we're doing in, in, in a short-term and immediate way, just keep saying this is inaccurate, and it has nothing to do with bail reform. But when you have people all around the city who are saying, do something, just as they're seeing headlines and whatever about this, and he's saying, here's what I want to do, and then the response is, uh, th th those things aren't relevant, as opposed to, here's what we do, it seems to provide... Um, an opening in a uh, political sense, at least for, 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 for 
a rollback. And a rollback, obviously, the vested forces like the police unions and the New York Post um, and others have always had, where their answer is always incarcerate more people. All this may come to a head finally around Rikers. Let's be clear. Their response is always incarcerate more Black people and Latino people. Right? Because it's like... That's been the response. Not all people, just mm-hmm. specific people from specific neighborhoods and specific classes. It's, it's well, vital cities where we had Elizabeth Glazer on last week. They have this incredible chart showing that the the, the neighborhoods where most of these shootings happen, the, the 30 neighborhoods have not shifted over 30 and 40 years now, which is really striking. And yet, the politics of incarceration are very different in those neighbors where the share, their share of the citywide total of shootings has not moved really in decades, even as the total number of shootings has plummeted dramatically until very recently when it's moved in the, the wrong direction, but from a much lower point. Um, with that, is th- there's so much more to dig into there. Uh, we're not going to get to everything this week, of course. Let's shift complicated issues and bring in Wayne Ho. <laughs> Back in January, we had Assemblymember Ron Kim on to discuss his office's new report on, quote, the nonprofit war on workers. The charge, the Chinese American Planning Council, with using legal tactics to exploit home health care workers uh, working 24-hour live-in shifts with a 13-hour rule meant to ensure they have time for sleep and meals. A rule that the uh, Chinese American Planning Council says it is fighting the change in Albany, but ask you largely abide by in the meantime to provide the essential services that it does. Since that episode aired, an arbitrator, without finding the sort of systematic issues that Kim's report alleged, uh, did establish a fund of at least $30 million from 42, uh, I believe, all nonprofit home care agencies represented by 1199, including the Chinese American Planning Council Home Attendant Program, which is uh, one of the city's largest nonprofit home care providers. Um, albeit one with only a handful of its workers doing these 24-hour shifts as they've tried under existing law to shift people into paired 12-hour shifts. So this is weedy stuff, but it's also a big moral issue and a big issue for the state with about 250,000 home care patients right now and 330,000 home care workers in New York altogether. And it's one that's only going to get bigger as the state's population ages in the years ahead. So joining us to discuss all this and the state of fair play and fair pay proposals being negotiated in Albany now as part of the budget big ugly is Wayne Ho, the president of the Chinese American Planning Council. Wayne, thank you for joining us. And can you please give our listeners a sense of the work your group does and what's at stake here for patients who need home care and for their providers, many of them older immigrant women? Great. Uh, thank you for inviting me to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the essential services and the essential work that we're doing as CPC, the Chinese American Planning Council. So uh, CPC, we were founded in 1965, and we've grown now to become the largest Asian American social services organization in the country. On a normal year, we serve about 60,000 New Yorkers of all ages and backgrounds through our human services work. Uh, In the past year, because of the pandemic, we actually served twice as many New Yorkers, over 125,000 New Yorkers. One of our subsidiary organizations is the Chinese American Planning Council Home Attendant Program, CPC-HAP, which has about 3,000 home care patients who are being served by 4,500 home care workers. 
So while we provide a slew of services from early childhood education to youth services to senior programming, uh, we also do provide home care services. Uh, We should keep in mind that in home care, that imagine that you live in New York City and you're an older adult or you're a disabled person of all ages um, who needs critical care and you want to age with dignity and get the care in your own home. And that's why home care is such a critical piece of our service delivery. Um, Home care is regulated by the state of New York. It's mostly funded by Medicaid. CPCHAP is 100% Medicaid-funded nonprofit home care agency. And we serve our community through employing our own community members. Um, During this time, uh, we want to make sure, especially during the pandemic, where our home care workers were risking their health and their own family's health to provide these critical services that we need to do better for these workers. And because it's so controlled by Medicaid, we need to see legislative changes and state budget changes so we can better support our workers while at the same time providing more continuous and quality care to our patients. So Wayne, can we back up just a little bit? Because I have two questions from your overview. And so the first is you mentioned Medicaid, but I guess for for me and and probably some of our listeners, I'm still confused a bit about the complicated funding. So the first question I have for you is, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, how that funding works and explain how the CPC home attendant program is funded and how these primarily women, I'm assuming, ultimately get paid? Sure. So um, home care, you have to be licensed as a home care agency in order to provide these services. So CPC HAP was licensed in 1998. And there's a few hundred home care agencies throughout the state of New York. And after being licensed by the State Department of Health, you need to apply for contracts with your local county. So in New York City, it would be Human Resources Administration. And then because of Medicaid redesign, which happened 10 years ago under Governor Cuomo, we can also apply for contracts with managed care organizations, um, such as Health First, Visiting Nurse Services, and others. So the state of New York right now spends tens of millions of dollars, sorry, tens of billions of dollars with a B through Medicaid in order to fund home care services. So the Medicaid dollars flow through either counties or float through the managed care organizations. And then we receive contracts as licensed home care agencies to provide these services. So there are for-profit and non-profit home care agencies. Um, Some do take private insurance. Some take private pay, which requires other types of certification. But the vast majority of home care agencies, non-profit or for-profit, are 100% Medicaid funded. So these are state Medicaid dollars that fund the services for the home care patients. And we as the home care agencies employ home care workers to provide these services to the patients. They can range from 20 hours a week to 40 hours a week to those patients who are more frail and more vulnerable who need a home care worker on site for 24 hours a day. Gotcha. And so I guess, you know, I was talking to some legislators um, who are working on some of the bills that are currently making their way through Albany 
Um, and you mentioned before we we got on the podcast, the Fair Pay for Home Care Act, and then another act that would um, end 24-hour shifts. So can you walk us through those bills and why is it so important for us to, to get those passed? And also, why are people protesting these bills? <laughs> like, I mean, I think that's my that's my real confusion. Um, they seem really straightforward to protect women's right to work uh, and especially vulnerable populations. So why would anyone essentially be against this legislation? Uh, I think that's a great question. Um, we know that Fair Pay for Home Care has built a big coalition from the union to the workers to the seniors and disabled patients themselves advocates, uh, disability advocates, senior advocates, uh, the nonprofit home care providers ourselves are all behind Fair Pay for Home Care. So Fair Pay for Home Care is sponsored by Assemblymember Dick Gottfried and State Senator Rachel May. And they've realized that home care workers, while they're essential workers, that they themselves are struggling because the jobs right now pay them minimum wage. State regulations, union agreements have all dictated that this essential workforce earns minimum wage. So one out of every seven low-income New Yorker right now is a home care worker. There's a shortage of home care workers right now because of such low pay. So we need to make sure that these essential workers are better compensated for their work. So fair pay for home care would be an act if it's adopted through the budget process, and we're hoping it will happen this legislative season after three, four years of advocacy, that all home care worker wages would increase to 150% of the regional minimum income. So that means that our hardworking essential home care workers would earn 50% more income for doing the same job. Um, we believe that that makes sense philosophically because they're an essential workforce. We believe it makes sense programmatically because we can make sure there's better care for the patients themselves. It makes sense operationally because right now there's about a 17% shortage in home care workers. And research has shown that we're going to need a million more home care workers over the next 10 years. Um, so we can bring in more home care workers uh, in order to serve these vulnerable community members, especially as the aging population is growing. Um, and then you've raised another bill. Uh, there's another bill sponsored by Assembly Member Harvey Epstein, as well as State Senator Roxanne Persaud, which would end 24-hour shifts. 24-hour home care shifts would be converted into two 12-hour split shifts. Right now, according to the court decisions, union agreements, state regulations, State Department of Labor guidelines, there's what's known as a 13-hour rule. So a home care worker who's working a 24-hour shift uh, is compensated for 13 hours with the understanding that the other 11 hours includes mealtime and sleep time. Uh, if there's an interruption, then the worker should be compensated for their sleep interruption or their meal interruption. Uh, as a home care agency, we actually are not reimbursed for those 11 hours if an interruption happens. So we know that having a worker on site in someone's home for 24 hours, whether it's one day a week, two days, or three days a week, um, that they're on site. And we philosophically believe that the workers should be compensated for that time. 
But the current guidelines say that we compensate them for 13 hours. And that's why the Epstein and Persaud bill is so critical because one, it would make a legislative change to once again, government labor guidelines, as well as wage guidelines, uh, as well as Medicaid funding to ensure that there will be increased funding to hire two home care workers to take care of the patient. Uh, the reason why we see the Fair Pay for Home Care bill and the Epstein and Persaud bill as being complementary is because there are worries that if the Epstein and Persaud bill passes, that we will still have a worker shortage. And without enough home care workers to fill these two positions, does that mean that more seniors and more disabled will be institutionalized into nursing homes? And we know that's not safe during this time. So that's why we need fair pay for home care in order to pay workers better and to deal with the worker shortage. And then with uh, having uh, no more 24-hour shifts, we can pay the workers better and have enough workers to support these very highly vulnerable patients. Can you clarify the cost of getting up to 150% of the regional minimum wage and who would be footing that bill? So the estimates are that the fair pay for home care would cost somewhere between three to $4 billion a year in state Medicaid funding. So while that seems like a lot, Research has also shown that in the first full year of implementation, that alone would lead to $6 billion worth of economic activity that would come back to the state of New York. So that means fair pay for home care would pay for itself. The workers and their families would get higher wages, and the state of New York could offset any increased expenses by getting more economic activity. Um, we also know that the Epstein and Persaud bill, it's estimated to cost $1 billion a year. So this would be $1 billion a year for us to make sure that our most vulnerable seniors and disabled who are currently getting home care can uh, get care from two workers every day, as opposed to one worker during the day. Um, I think it's important to note, you mentioned there's are about 250,000 patients who receive home care right now. Uh, about 11,000 of those receive 24-hour care. Uh, CPC, we have less than half of 1% of that amount. Uh, and that's why, to Christina's question, we ourselves are confused about some of these protests that are happening. Um, there are some people protesting fair pay for home care. It, to me, we want to, why would you not want to support workers? Why would we not want to raise their wages during this time? Um, and we as CPCHAP are one of hundreds of home care agencies. And while we're a large home care agency, we make a small portion of 24-hour cases. Um, so we should have a similar coalition fighting for the Epstein-Persaud bill, like we have now seen in Fair Pay for Home Care, having a large broad-based coalition of nonprofit, advocacy, union, faith-based, and racial justice leaders. <clears throat> so, Wayne, this is Katie. I, I, I wanted to ask and give you the opportunity to further address some of the um, criticisms uh, your organization and you uh, received from Assemblymember Ron Kim and others alleging wage theft and that you're blocking the access uh, to courts from from the from the workers who work for you. So if you just want to talk a little bit about that, how that began, I, I believe it was in, in early 2020 and just your response to because, you know, we had the assemblyman on. So we wanted to get your opportunity to address those criticisms. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity, Katie. Um, 
I am surprised that the assembly member uh, issued a report that targets one home care agency, especially a home care agency that upon audits from HRA and managed care organizations scores 100% on worker compensation through our annual audits. This includes audits with the state itself through the Office of Medicaid Inspector General. Um, we've had conversations with the assembly member as well as other state legislators for the five plus years that I've been leading CPC about the critical need to reform home care. State government sets the rules. State government uh, makes the labor law. State government funds Medicaid that funds home care. And we comply with all of these rules. Uh, but these rules we recognize are not fair for workers and not fair for patients all the time. So that's why we've been advocating for change while complying with these rules. Um, because these are state governmental rules, it requires legislative changes. So that's where the assembly member, as well as other legislators, should get together if they want to see these changes. We've seen that happen with Fair Pay for Home Care on worker compensation, led by Assemblymember Godfried and Senator May. And we would like to see that happen with Assemblymember Epstein and Senator Persaud's bill. And because this is a systemic issue, uh, it would be great if Assemblymember Kim and others work together to create those changes. It's also important to note that we at CPCHAP are a unionized organization. Our workers elected 1199 SEIU to be their advocates and to be their representative. And we respect that. Our founders of CPC were union members. CPC has four unions that are part of our human services, residential, and home care employees. So we work through the union processes. Uh, if we have a unionized staff member who is not performing well, in order for us just to do a corrective action plan, we have to go through the union process. So in this case, if the home care workers had concerns about CPC, HAP, not following through on wage laws, there is a process through 1199. And that's where we went through first with having a meeting to going through a mediation several years ago where we did try to reach a settlement at that point. And then because 1199 SEIU having labor agreements with 42 nonprofit home care agencies recognize that CPC, as well as the other 41 agencies are facing lawsuits, that this is a systemic issue. So let's bring all 100,000 home care workers together under this arbitration process. So it was a union that decided to pull everyone together it's the union that ident helped identify an arbitrator that we agreed to, and the arbitrator, upon his own research, which included looking at the lawsuits and testimonies of home care workers themselves who are plaintiffs in these cases, determined the outcome, which is this 30 to $35 million special wage fund that would be distributed to the workers uh, according to a formula that the arbitrator created. If the workers worked 24-hour shifts, or worked longer years or for more years or had more hours, then they would be compensated more from the wage fund. So the arbitrator also stated that any home care agency that fell short of compliance with wage and hour laws, it was unintentional. The arbitrator also said that some home care agencies were in full compliance, but because the arbitrator wanted to make sure that workers get paid fairly and equitably and quickly, and that workers themselves don't have to pick up legal fees 
And lastly, to recognize we need to sustain this home care sector that the arbitrator made his decision. And we at CPC will be tossing in about $1.3 million into the wage fund. And we agree with this decision and we respect the union process as well as the arbitrator's decision. Really quickly, Wayne, uh, because I was reading this article on New York Focus from January 4th that you know really zeroed in on sort of two women's complaints. Um, is there something else going on underneath this? Seem, it, it almost seems like a personal attack. So is there is there something we're missing from the larger narrative? And why is it that uh, this particular assembly member who, you know, obviously has his is, is sights on um, some larger offices, possibly. Um, is it personal or is it something that we're missing? Or is, so, is it just the story is the story? I think it's important to note that um, the two home care workers that filed the lawsuits in 2015 against CPC HAP, the claims that they've made and the allegations they've made have been different from some of the other allegations that have happened at a couple of press conferences that have targeted CPC HAP, uh, which are now different than some of the allegations that are in the assembly members report. So I've raised that because any inappropriate behavior that CPC HAP or CPC administrative staff might have done to our workers is completely unacceptable. And that's why we are investigating this situation. So we did have a conversation with the assembly member where we did raise that we are conducting an independent investigation into the claims raised in his report. Uh, many of the workers are anonymous in the report. So if the workers would come forward along with a representative to make sure there's a safe space for our investigation, we welcome that. Um, it's been two months now and we are still waiting for the names of the workers and their representatives. And we followed up several times with the assembly member's office and they have not responded to that request. Um, in terms of if there's something deeper, uh, I think that's a great question. And I encourage everyone to do a little more research into the organizations that are protesting CPC HAP. There's been decades of community politics and decades of tension with this organization undermining the work of CPC and our subsidiary organizations. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate because during this time, if we specifically want to make things better for home care workers and home care patients, we need to work together. I would like to think that we want the same thing, which is better pay and better working conditions for our workers and better care and better services for our home care patients. Uh, but I would encourage folks to do some more research and find out um, if that's the outcome that we would like, then let's all work with our legislators. Let's build a broad-based coalition uh, but we have been informed by our legislators that we meet with that it seems like CPC and home care agencies, 1199 and advocates are the ones talking about both fair pay for home care and the epstein Prasad bill. And it seems that um, some of these community folks have not been speaking to legislators about the bill that would create this, these changes. Um, so I think these are critical questions. I would encourage folks to just to do more research on what is happening. Just one more question about all of that. So this report from um, Assemblymember Kim's office was uh, is a uh, legislative director, David Lee, who wrote it. It's, it's an interesting and confusing read, uh, or was for me at least, right? It's 103 pages. 
Uh, it is very detailed and specific at points. And then at a lot of others, it, it's offering a very broad, explicitly Marxist critique of uh, your organization and, and how this, this, uh, this part of the economy is set up. Um, I think most broadly there, and this sort of helps explain how, how two groups in CPC and, and Kim's office, who you would associate with the left, with all these other questions and end up in this sort of hostility uh, uh, is that there are all these processes in place um, in a state that's run by, by, by Democrats uh, where workers are represented by a large union and so on. And yet the, the outcomes for workers, as you've been saying, and because of state laws often aren't what they should be. Um, and so they, they, they object to the, the whole arbitration system because that's binding for the workers. And they, in effect, argue in the report that, uh, that, that, that there's this divergence between the groups that are supposed to be representing the workers and the workers' actual interests. So I, I just wanted to weigh that out and, and hear your thoughts on, uh, on, on that critique and the work you're, in fact, doing. Um. CPC did release some FAQs about home care, as well as some of the items that were raised in the port. Um, we recognize that home care is a completely complicated system. And for example, uh, it's an easy soundbite to say N24 hour cases, but we as the nonprofit home care agency has no authority over that, just like all other home care agencies. The only agencies that can split 24-hour cases into two 12-hour split shifts are either the local counties, which for us in New York City would be Human Resources Administration, or the managed care organizations themselves. And every 90 days, an independent nurse comes and does a review of 24-hour patients to see if they need two 12-hour split shifts. We can appeal, we can advocate, we can urge HRA or MCOs to convert the cases. But at the end of the day, it comes down to HRA, the local agencies, and managed care organizations. And that's the same situation for every home care agency and every patient and every worker across the state of New York. I'm not defending the system. I think we know that the Medicaid system and managed care system is a broken system, and we need to see more investments into the system, compensating workers, ensuring better services. Uh, but a good soundbite, a good hashtag on social media does not mean that's what's really happening operationally. So I encourage uh, stakeholders to take a look at our FAQs and do some more research on their own and get the facts. What I do think is important to note is that um, we are a union shop, just like many other nonprofit agencies. So not just with 1199, but we have worked for years with DC 1707 to fight for salary parity with our early childhood staff. We have worked for years with CSA to fight for salary parity with our early childhood and after-school directors. We have worked for years with DC 37 to fight for just pay and cost of living adjustments with our human services staff. And similarly, we've partnered with 1199 to fight for just pay and end 24-hour shifts with our home care workers. In the examples of our early childhood staff, our after-school staff, and our human services staff, they did not sue the employer. 
they recognize that the employer complies with these complicated laws and contracts and that it's really the city or the state that funds these contracts and pays them poverty wages. And that's why unions and workers have worked together to try and create these changes. And we've seen some successes with early childhood, for example, on salary parity. And that's why in this case, once again, uh, the home care sector needs more investments. It's a systemic issue. And we want to do right by the workers. But the only way for us to do right by the workers is make sure that the state does the investments and we need to see legislators work together to pass fair pay for home care, as well as passing the Epstein-Persaud bill to end 24-hour shifts. So, Wayne, we're going to let you get out of here. Um, <laughs> just want to let you know, we've trademarked the term FAQ. So when you said that. <laughs> oh, you that's might, right. I should have said, getting... check out CPC's FAQs, trademarked. By <laughs> right. <this. laughs> just, just as a heads up, you might be getting a bill since we've trademarked FAQ. But I should have asked this question at the very beginning um, because we've been talking about the Chinese American Planning Council. But I know of the CPC's work from what you've done with elderly, the elderly, and sort of young people and sort of educational programs. So can you just zoom out 30,000 feet and give us a more broad vision? I mean, I know that you all are doing so much with healthcare workers and home home healthcare workers, but what are some of the other projects and programs that you all have going on? Because when I'm on the Lower East Side, I see you all in conjunction with, you know, the Chinese American Museum and sort of a lot of cultural institutions and other um, uh, endeavors sort of in Southern Manhattan, but I know that that's just a small sliver of what you all are doing. Yeah, no, thank you for this opportunity. So uh, if my general counsel were here, he would love this question because he <laughs> likes reminding us that CPC is one entity, CPC HAP is another entity, our affordable housing uh, buildings or other entities. Uh, we have served in the last year 125,000 New Yorkers, two-thirds of our community members are Asian American. The other third represents the diversity of New York City, black, brown, other immigrant um, New Yorkers. Um, we have programs, to, uh, daycare programs, where over 300 children every day in Flushing, in Chinatown, in Lower East Side come to get their early child education. Uh, we serve about 10,000 high school students every year through summer youth employment programs, after school programs. Uh, the alphabet soup of Department of Youth and Community Development programs, CPC, does. Um, every day, about 2,000 seniors come to our four senior centers in Flushing, Chinatown, and Sunset Park. Um, there's also programs that we run that people might not know. We have a program known as Project Reach, uh, which serves LGBTQ youth of color. Uh, and every year, hundreds of young people um, get support and leadership development um, through Project Reach. We also are one of two Asian American nonprofits that have contracts with the State Office of People with Developmental Disabilities um, to provide services to family and to individuals who have intellectual or developmental disabilities. That includes a 24-hour residence uh, where we provide around-the-clock care um, to also respite programs. Uh, so it's key to note that um, for 57 years, 
we have been of the community, from the community, and with the community. And that's why we employ individuals from our community to provide culturally competent and language accessible programs to community members. Uh, and that's something that we hold dear. So uh, it's true. We are a large nonprofit organization with subsidiaries. So over $200 million a year uh, in contracts. Um, that 99% of that is restricted funding where we can only use it for the programs that we've raised money for. And the reason why I have a $200 million in revenue is because we have $200 million of expenses and we do not have an endowment. Uh, we do not have surpluses. That money goes back to us achieving our mission of promoting the social and economic empowerment of Asian American immigrant and low-income New Yorkers. Right. Well, I will say this before we let you go. And thank you so much for joining us on FAQ. You've been on before and we really appreciate it. Um, I do remember when COVID first came to New York City, your organization really doubled down to protect, especially elderly New Yorkers. Um, and I really just want to shout out CPC and you specifically for making that happen. No, no, thank you for that. Um, I think that's something that we did was not just fighting for seniors, but we recognize that we had to fight for our essential workers, uh, making sure they had access to vaccines, making sure they had access to hazard pay and PPE. Uh, we also recognize that Chinatowns uh, and CPC is in all 51 council districts, but specifically in Chinatowns, uh, we were impacted by COVID two months before the rest of the state. Mm. And, you know, mm. we, we just reached the two-year anniversary of New York on pause uh, but two months before that, uh, our Chinatowns were struggling economically, but CPC stayed open because we recognized we had to serve the community during that time. So uh, because of our advocacy, we're delighted to see there's been state investments and city investments to address the dual pandemics of COVID as well as anti-Asian hate. Uh, and we recognize that while our community might have been the first to suffer through our advocacy and our partnerships uh, and our services, uh, we will not be the last to recover. Thank you again for uh, for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it. And uh, come back on, please. There's lots more to discuss. Great. Thank you very much, Harry and Christina. It's good to see you. And I hope you're doing well. Stay safe. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. F-A-Q. FAQ.NYC is a production of Rocket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics. Online at thebrick.house. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and came to you this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens. A special thank you to our guest, Wayne Ho of the Chinese American Planning Council. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be cool and be kind, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>